Welcome to the Family Business Audiocast on LinkedIn. I'm Artem Smith, creator of this Audiocast series. I've been an entrepreneur, investment banker, and board leader for 25 years. Thank you for the registrants for this event today. The episode will be recorded and released in the coming weeks. Family business is a passion of mine, having grown up in a family of entrepreneurs and engaged in a wide range of dialogues and businesses with fascinating family enterprises around the globe for two decades. I founded the Family Business Audiocast to provide a valuable platform for listeners to hear from veterans, academics, and leaders in family-owned enterprises and family offices. Whether you're a seasoned family business leader or a billionaire or building a family office, these conversations are meant to be enlightening. Today, we have a special episode focusing on the family office and the family firm with a particular emphasis on the uh, entrepreneurial elements of the family company and some of the academic structures and uh, governance and, and the operational mechanisms to make a family firm successful. Family business is a subject close to my heart and I'm excited to delve into these topics with our esteemed guest today. Today, we welcome Professor Matt Hughes. Matt, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much, Adam. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be joining you on this audio cast. So a bit about Matt, <clears throat> um, you can find Matt on LinkedIn, as well as at the University of Leicester in, in UK. He's a Schultz Distinguished Professor of Family Business and a Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the University. His expertise lies in the strategy and management of entrepreneurship and innovation with a special focus on family firms. Matt is an award-winning teacher, researcher, practitioner, and doctoral supervisor. He also hosts the Professor Matt Hughes podcast, successful podcast series in its own right, and he's worked as an advisor to many businesses and organizations globally, large and small, over 20 years. He's also the associate editor of the Journal of Family Business Strategy and also the senior editor of the leading family business information website, familybusiness.org. <clears throat> We're thrilled to have him here today. Uh, Matt, let's dive into the conversation. Uh, First of all, tell us about you and your, your professor role at the university. Great. Yeah, thank you very much, Adam. Um, it's been a really interesting journey for me. My my family have got a background of, of being entrepreneurs and, and having family businesses. And to be honest, the whole, you know, you know the classic story of my, my father being made redundant and, and then you know, taking that redundant money and starting his own business really changed everything for our family and uh, threw in my mom uh, who, who was doing all the accounts and things and my, my dad was uh, in construction uh, with a, with an interest in like artisan building and and, re and historical construction and things and um, yeah that kind of drew in me and my twin brother but at the same time he always told us you know don't go into the family business <laughs> not, not because of any stresses but more because of the physical toll that construction takes so right. I did the next best thing and decided that I would like to study um, entrepreneurship. And over time, this this took me into into family business. And uh, so, yeah, my my role as things stand is I'm professor of innovation and entrepreneurship. But for the last ten years or so, I've been really di deep diving into my passion for family businesses and trying to understand how they function, how they survive, how how they are so resilient. And innovative over time, despite you know a body of research suggesting to us that they are perhaps quite conservative in their actions, and therefore trying to understand that kind of paradox between how do they manage their their legacy and their history, and what makes them innovative and and so powerful uh, going forward. 
That's wonderful. Uh, in some of the previous audio casts, we've spoken with some leaders that uh, uh, that really hone in on the uh, sustainability of of um, the organization and to um, to find a way to continue that legacy. But at the same time, there are some uh, challenges in these private companies in terms of operational excellence and compensation and governance and the and succession planning. Um, so also you are editor at the Journal of Family Business Strategy. What, yes. um, what is that about? Well, Journal of Family Business Strategy is one of the premier um, journals dedicated to family business uh, research. We take great pride in not just providing the latest and groundbreaking research, but also making sure that that research is very applicable to family owners, family advisors, family managers. And so the journal itself is is hosted by Elsevier and the editor-in-chief is uh, Torsten Pieper from uh, University of North Carolina in Charlotte. And uh, there's, there's a good team of, of associate editors and I'm, I'm one of them and we you know, make sure that we try to draw in the best research, make sure that it's rigorous and well thought through and, and by the same time has, has real meaning, a real practical relevance to, to the community. That's wonderful. I've been reading some of that uh, those articles the last couple of years. It's a it's a quite a, a terrific journal. Um, so Thank moving you. on to the, the family firm ecosystem. So maybe um, everybody knows the family office market is expanding and that there are thousands of family-owned firms. Um, but perhaps um, given your focus on innovation and entrepreneurship, um, maybe start talking about the um, the importance of the, the corporate ownership and governance and stewardship of the yep. firm. And then we'll move into the next gen element of, of that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. Uh, it's something I've been researching actively in the in recent years. It actually started with a study that we did for the Institute for Family Business in the UK, where they were very interested in understanding the relationship between corporate governance and the entrepreneurship and innovation of the family business. Um, in, in our study, the UK is a bit different because we also not only have family offices and family councils, but we also have um, family trusts that are allowed into the legal structure. But what is interesting is, is how important it is to have that kind of a mixture of both family and external oversight on the core family management team, especially in terms of heading off its some of its natural tendencies to pull in a particular trajectory. So for instance, in one of our studies where we looked at the relationship between corporate governance and innovation strategy, what we tended to find was that family businesses would put most of their um, emphasis on operational excellence or what is, can be broadly described as an exploitative innovation strategy. Not exploitative in the negative sense, more in terms of exploiting the existing capabilities, competencies, products and services of the, of the business. So it's relatively low risk. The uh, safety and the returns of it are, are fairly well established, but it, it does become path dependent. And so that explains a lot about how, why we've, didn't, we've learned over the years that family firms don't necessarily innovate, even though they've got the resources and the capabilities to do so, and this this brings us to this challenge of 
of willingness and ability. So the family firm often has the ability to innovate, but not necessarily the willingness. And this is where corporate governance um, can specifically come in because it can start to uh, change the thought processes uh, among senior managers or among family owners and managers and help therefore unlock more explorative innovation strategies that are especially needed if the business needs to change course or needs to overcome you know, a legacy of underperformance, for instance, and, and move in a, in a particular trajectory. As it happens, uh, in our research, one of the most critical factors that we found for enabling that switch in innovation strategy because of corporate governance happened by involving the next generation family members in the business's decision-making and strategizing because that led new ideas to, to fold into the strategy process and help start kickstart that change. Right. Well, the next generation uh, can be G2, G3, G4. And as we've seen from the research from Camden and, and people, experts like Ron Diamond and Christina Wing that we've had on the audio cast, there is a, a diminishing return of of, of continuity as you go through the generations. Um, sometimes there's change uh, that is uh, premeditated um, to um, to retain the business. Let's say in the case of uh, LVMH is a good example, or uh, in the U.S. we have we have the Pritzker family, we have Dot Foods. There's lots of businesses that that continue through the second or third generation. But back to this point about next gen and tr founder transitions, you and I are talking about um, the importance of experience and not just desire to to remain in the family business for wealth yes. or, or or ego purposes. So maybe talk a bit about the the experience of the the family members and and how you've seen successful evolutions from uh, the G one. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I think. One of the points I'll, I'll just quickly pick up on there is the concept of diminishing um, elements over time in terms of both the, the willingness and desire of the next generation members to, to continue to be involved. But equally, one of the things that we've come across now, very, very recent research, um, is the idea that not each generation, in fact, contributes equally valuable new resources that are beneficial to the family business. So for instance, in, in, in one of our studies of, of, among Chinese family businesses, one of the things that we found is that this, the most valuable new resources come in the first and then second generation. But as we enter the third generation, they offer fewer valuable resources in terms of helping, for example, the family business capitalize on innovation ideas and being able to turn that into wealth. So I think that is another interesting element there is, is to what extent does the, does the family ask itself, well, who is best place to take on and, and lead the business? In fact, as, as we are literally speaking in, in, the, in the UK, there's a very famous family business in, in the area in Leicester, uh, where I live and work, uh, Wilkinson's, they've um, recently have gone into administration and it looks like it's going to result in the closure of 400 out of the 450 retail stores and it has been really interesting watching that how the family seems to have become disassociated from the running of the business and disassociated from 
the maintaining and sustaining that business. In fact, they've been almost silent in the in the, the process of this administration, and that is, the the business is now ninety years old, and in and in um, I think in its third generation, as far as I can remember. But it does signal to the, to the fact about the desire of of the next generation, but also thinking more appropriately about what resources do they bring in terms of knowledge, uh, networks, capacity, and ideas that, that will actually be beneficial to the family business, or should that be traded against professionalization, for instance? Well, there's, there's also the personal interests of the of the owners, right? That there's a often, there's not a... Uh, correlation or uh, consistency between the continuity of the company and the actual personal interests of the successor generation so there can yes. be there can be a difference of a opinion there but where where do you think the next generations get the their most experience is it is it a combination of business schools or is it uh, outside boards or or going to like say a McKinsey or something like that or how do you look at the attribution of entrepreneurship knowledge and, and value add within the organization in terms of internal versus external knowledge? From, from uh, at least from an educational viewpoint, one of the things that I've realized uh, over the years, I've headed up um, postgraduate programs in entrepreneurship and innovation, and they consistently draw a high number of students that come from family business backgrounds and more often than not it's part of a deliberate strategy of educational um, upskilling uh, to a certain extent in terms of increasing the, the, their educational attainment against perhaps what was not available um, or, or not an option to, to some of the previous generations of the business. In some ways that is uh, one, a case of expanding that human capital, expanding the worldview almost, because the, especially if they um, travel abroad for education, which in the case of the students that I taught, that was very much the case. It was a mixture of both the education and also the overseas experience. Part of it was strategic because the family businesses in question had some ideas of um, expanding internationally. So, for example, some of my students were uh, from Indian family businesses that ran either textile businesses or refrigeration businesses or white goods businesses. And they were, on the one hand, getting education, but also, on the other hand, uh, experiencing and understanding the markets that they were considering to expand into. The um, other aspect of this that I would, would like to flag up is, and I, uh, this is a subject that came up in an interview um, I, I did recently with Mira Blumen. So she's a, a, a professor in the Netherlands, but has yeah, been a, with her family business for generations. And what was interesting in speaking to her was how even at a very early age, the parenting style of parents can in fact directly affect whether or not a successor from the next generation is even plausible. So for instance, in Mira's case, her and... Um, her brother were discussed as, as part of the, of the next generation succession, but it was never really intended to hand over to Mira, for instance. It was much more of to, to the son or to, to the brother. So that has a direct effect because it started to reshape her thinking about, well, does she want to stay in the family business? And so there is a, there is a biasing risk. Some very recent uh, recent articles we have on familybusiness.org talks about helicopter parenting and how that excess level of oversight, in fact, works against 
the founders desire to keep the business within uh, family control because it can start to change the preferences and ambitions of the next generation. Yeah, there's always that tug of war between uh, cash today and cash tomorrow, right? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So with um, if, actually, if we pick up on on, on that point, is um, one of the the key areas of, of research around uh, family business has been around the idea of social emotional wealth. It's that concept that the family business doesn't just value the, the wealth and the, the financial wealth of the business creates, but in fact values very deeply the opportunities the family business creates for maintaining control and legacy, maintaining family ties and family bonds and being able to pass the business on to the next generation. When those conditions become destabilized, the fear that comes along with that can again change behavior in terms of activating innovation behavior, for example, or activating more profound search for a, for a successor, be that within the, the family or beyond the family. So th these are other, I would say, critical elements based on the, it also really stems from the dynamic between the, the current generation and the next generation and where they, where they see the, the transition of the business going. Right. So um, the emotional connection to the business, uh, to these family firms um, that allow for that continuity as opposed to selling the business like in my case uh very often working on on uh, acquiring or selling the these private companies um that that impetus comes from usually a um not a consensus uh point of view but really the decision making decision makers um the g1 or the g2 sometimes looking to sell um, and the next generation doesn't want to sell or the reverse where the next generation doesn't want to run the business and maintain a legacy um, and really pushes the family to let the business go and move on for a monetization event. But what um, what are you seeing about philanthropy as an important element of integrating into these businesses um, to to maybe make the social fabric uh, more uh, more sticky for the for the. The, yes. the, the later generations. Absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point. I, th I think the point about philanthropy, I believe, is also related to the issue of emotions and the concept of emotional attachment. Because the more emotionally attached the family members are to the family business, then the more that they will identify the, themselves as individuals directly with the business, and therefore it becomes highly aligned in that sense. So... Um, on the one hand, we have that emotional connection, but in terms of philanthropy, I think that is extremely important because what we are one of the trends that we are very much seeing um, in not just in research now, but also as we look at family businesses over time and as they start to enter these succession moments, is that there are differences not it between generations in terms of between baby boomers and millennials and Generation X and so on and so forth, and each of them have a different set of values. They've been brought up in a different type of society with a different type of education system, with a different type of world that emphasizes different types of messages to them. Right. And as a direct consequence of that, what we see is that these different generations have a very different um, 
how can I say, mindset as to what they consider to be important. So I think philanthropic efforts, for example, are absolutely very important for modern day generations who will be perhaps the next in line to inherit a family business. For instance, just for the sake of example, if, if I just think of my own son and uh, he's currently in high school, there has been you know, a direct education, for example, on things like climate change. So because of that, he is already highly sensitized to that and it's affecting his his behavior, his values. And so when this occurs in the family business, we see these clash of generations and this can cause tension in between whether or not um, there is an alignment between the current generation and future generation and what that may mean for the business. Got it. <clears throat> so maybe give us some examples of the best uh, philanthropic structures you've seen um, for these larger family firms? Are they um, setting up uh, a, a, a charitable structure for the whole company or is maybe is there a separate arm or um, are there um, are there specific uh, personal interests, maybe passion interests that are set up by the next generation? What what are the what are charitable philanthropic um, initiatives yeah. that seem to be the most effective? From what I've seen, it, it's very much a mix. Uh, some family businesses, for instance, will open a, um, a, a philanthropic arm, so to speak, to the family business, which then goes and makes um, investments in, uh, it might be in the local community, for instance, or in the region, or e even in, in courses, whatever it is that the family business is particularly passionate about. Increasingly, I think, that especially those run by more recently established family businesses or the ones that are, have, are very much in current generation control, then I think, again, what we see is an alignment between what are the causes that they are interested in and how those align with the values of that the business wants to espouse going forward. So on the one hand, it, it's it's a direct consequence of the pressure of ESG, so, um, environmental, social, and governance goals that are being placed on firms. This this can obviously come from uh, outside stakeholders, but in, in the UK, for instance, there is a clear trajectory to for businesses to um, adopt ESG audits or environmental audits and sustainability audits where they're going to have to evidence how they um, meet certain environmental sustainability and, and social goals. So I think that's one element. The other element I have seen is where family businesses decide, okay, we are now stepping back from a, a trading enterprise to become more of an investment driven um, business. So again, this is where the family offices will certainly be involved, but that can both involve a corporate investment investment type arm as well as a philanthropic investment type arm so i would say there isn't a a, a set solution to this but rather it, it depends on whether or not the business sees itself as or the family sees itself as wanting to be a going concern or to move away from its current uh, businesses and more specifically into investing on philanthropy okay great so back to scale um there's a significant expansion of uh, especially the last couple of years in the aggregation of <clears throat> wealth into multifamily houses, um, especially looking at the, the some of the bigger names like BDT has is, is been quite successful. 
with Byron Trot and, and merging with other businesses. Um, and then we see some aggregations going on within the family uh, business and some of our uh, clients and friends. So um, it'd be interesting. We've seen um, lots of data and concern from some of the research from Harvard and also Ron Diamond and, and others about compensation. Um, so when you think about the scalability of the bigger family firms, um, it seems like there's an opportunity to really scale some of these firms combined and to take a more um, a more modern approach to compensation. Um, what are you seeing on that front happening now? Yeah, absolutely. The, the I think there there there's one distinction that I I feel that is important to make. One is the distinction between the ownership and the legal. The legal structure of the family business. So that is whether or not it's a publicly uh, listed family business or whether it's an entirely privately owned family business. And mainly because the market itself will impose a certain level of professionalization on the publicly listed family business, even though it has um, a wriggle room on ma maintaining family control. In the private family owned uh, biz family business, that's a different story because the the owners and managers have much more direct control and therefore that creates more variability in professionalization so if we take that down to the issue of compensation then for me really it's it's the alignment of interest between fa between family members and non-family employees that for me is is probably the most critical compensation question because for in the most recent years we've we've heard this terminology called the bifurcation bias, the tendency that family businesses will, whether deliberately or unconsciously, will tend to treat their um, family members different from their non-family employees. And that affects all manner of things from organizational justice to decision rights uh, to reward structures. The one thing I would say with compensation frameworks is that they typically achieve two things, or at least I've intended to achieve two things. One is reward behavior in a past sense, in terms of reward behavior over the past six, 12 but also is to incentivize forward-looking behavior. And so compensation frameworks really have a third layer, which is signaling in the sense that whatever is compensated, whatever is measured is ultimately what is deemed important to the employee. That's going to be the ultimate measure and so for that reason compensation frameworks carry significant signaling effects both to employees and into subsequent markets not just the labor market and so if in in a family business that has a more direct and perhaps more um uh, acute implication precisely because of this this distinguishment that we tend to see between the way the family and non-family employees uh, are often treated interesting I think perhaps in a separate conversation, and there's a, a, a obviously observers on the call that are in um, ESOPs or accounting or consulting uh, family businesses or lawyers. So the the, the equity structures and the compensation yep. structures are very interesting, not just from a governance perspective, but also in terms of incentives and fairness and and the ability for the the family firm to to survive and not just sell out uh, um, in any a weak a weak moment um moving on to some of your research you you have this um this noted in the article in in the sage journal um recently talking about the um of the entrepreneur 
entrepreneurial capabilities of a private firm of, of a family firm that um there's kind of winners and losers and it's in and that there's a there's some correlation you found um of um firms that are i guess set up operationally properly as as an entrepreneurial firm whether it be cultural or or operational structures um that if a firm um is not set up um with its entrepreneurial fabric that it will will have a very hard time pivoting into becoming an, an entrepreneurship yes. firm you call that operational entropy um and you did a paper on that tell us about yes. that yeah yeah thank you this is a, a paper published in the sage journal entrepreneurship theory and practice and it's a really interesting bit of research really because we we tracked a large number of of u.s publicly listed firms over a nearly 20 year period if i remember correctly um using data from CompuStat. and what we were interested in in discovering is that how how beneficial is it to be entrepreneurial? And by entrepreneurial, I mean really entrepreneurial. So really investing in breakthrough innovation, experimenting, just focusing on discovery and channeling the activities of, of the business around making breakthroughs. And this this speaks to the idea of, of the, the company being highly entrepreneurially oriented. And for the longest time, we've, we've We've been of a pretty strong belief in the field that the more entrepreneurially oriented the business is, the more likely it is to to succeed. It's going to be highly high, high performing and highly profitable. The problem is that a lot of our research suffers from survivor bias in the sense that we only measure those firms that are still succeeding and still doing well. We forget about those that have failed. Um, there is a cross-sectional uh, bias to, to most um, studies. So what we looked at in this um, paper was we started to ask ourselves, what does the highly entrepreneurial oriented business actually look like? And what we ideated, I guess, was the idea that the, the, the highly entrepreneurial oriented firm is, is just unencumbered. It's focused on breakthrough innovation, not operational excellence. It's focused on making new discoveries, not defining what is already, let's say, the revenue streams and the revenue sources of the firm. And because of this, it can get trapped in failure traps where the failure to make one um, breakthrough that, that will then bring in the revenue to fund its other breakthrough innovation activities can create this cycle in which the, the, the business exhausts its resources quickly and aggressively. And this is the phenomenon that we described as entrepreneurial entropy. So uh, a, a concept uh, neatly borrowed from physics. I should say that um, if it wasn't for my physics teacher, I would not have gone to university and I wouldn't be speaking with you today. <laughs> so I, I owe a, a lot to my physics teacher, but he made me super passionate about how we can learn from physics. And this is precisely what the paper is about. So. The, the highly entrepreneurial firm will exhaust resources quite aggressively, which increases the risk of firm failure. So as you were saying, that means we have to counterbalance this by making sure that we have good strategic processes, good management processes in place to handle our um, entrepreneurial um, efforts and our, our entrepreneurial tendencies. And make sure, for instance, by, by way of a quick example, that bad entrepreneurial initiatives are quickly discarded and don't, aren't allowed to fester and develop and therefore waste even more resources. The catch though, and I think this is one of the key takeaways I'd like to make is that 
and this is very salient for family businesses, is that those companies that try to make a fast switch from being conservative, being cautious, to being much more entrepreneurial, suffered the most. They were at a considerably higher rate of risk of failure than the other businesses that we studied in our sample. So this is a, a cautionary note really to family businesses that in making a switch from, let's say an aggressive switch from being more traditional, more operationally excellence focused, being considerably entrepreneurial and innovative without achieving that balance is going to tear at the fabric of the firm and increase its risk of failure. That's important to note. And just, just briefly on that before we wrap up soon, um, the, the catalyst for a firm to change course um, can come from different areas. Um, I'm not sure if you studied that in terms of the data, but you've got the, the internal, motiva internal motivations of, let's say, the board or the ownership wanting to really pivot because they need to. So there's, there's yes. the drive from in, internal, perhaps there's operational performance issues. Um, and then you have, um, let's say, the um, the younger generation coming in from their um, mm -hmm. from their business school or from their their millennial perspectives, and and really forcing change um, from within the family, the next generation. And then you typically you also have these larger firms; they would go hire, let's say, uh, Alvarez or Marcel or Bain or McKinsey or something, and they'd have. Uh, or, or family office consulting firm, they would have a, um, a findings. So just briefly, yeah. where does that, where do those aggressive pivots come from? Sure. Uh, well, as, as mentioned, aggressive pivots can often come from the fact that next generation members, uh, by virtue of being family, typically have decision rights and therefore can act with their own idiosyncratic criteria for what they see as a good opportunity for the business. So this is where, Resistance is never a bad thing in and of itself. If, res if resistance is simply there to prevent progress and prevent meaningful change, then it's bad. But when resistance acts as a balance to verify whether or not the innovative and entrepreneurial opportunities and ideas, for example, introduced by the next generation, actually sit well with the business. The one thing I would like to couch that is that there can be a tendency for, for example, for existing generation members to to um, push back against new technological breakthroughs, new innovations. But that, in, in some of our recent research, we find that what that does is, yes, it creates conflict, but that conflict can be constructive if it engages in a, a meaningful conversation about the future direction of the family business and how, again, acting as a balance, these things can be can be balanced out. The issue, though, um, around that is whether or not the resistance becomes one of a, a genuine belief that the, the business is doing better than it really is. And one of our most recent papers that we are, we are studies that we are currently finishing up, one of the things that we've discovered is that those family businesses that are characterized by high emotional attachment, so that is where the family members are deeply emotionally attached to the, to the family business. We found that they often perceive their financial performance to be far greater than it actually truly is when you look at the objective data, you look at the actual financial numbers. So in other words, the more emotionally attached the family members are, 
the more they believe the business is doing financially better off than it might actually be doing in real life. This is what may create the the, the risk that the, the, the family falls into underperformance. And typically when that happens, that activates the lesson from my other study on entropy. What we found is that those firms that are underperforming, that make a large swing towards being entrepreneurial and innovative are at enormous risk of failure because they haven't got the, the advantages of success and they have inbuilt liabilities that they may not even be aware of. And so I think that's a, two things I would really like to connect um, together here that are meaningful for family businesses. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, it's been a pleasure today. There's many topics we um, should address in some other conversations around um, entrepreneurship within the firm and, and governance and compensation and, and succession planning um, and organizational behavior. There's, there's lots, but I encourage uh, the listeners to uh, look up uh, Professor Matt Hughes at his university, um, at the uh, University of uh, Leicester, and also um, on his LinkedIn. And, and there's uh, also a Google Scholar page for his papers that are um, you could spend many hours reading. So it's, uh, you <laughs> produce you. a good amount of material. Um, so that brings us to the end of today's episode. I would like to express my gratitude to the listeners for joining. Uh, we will be uh, editing and re-releasing this in the future in the coming weeks um, here, as well as um, uh, through Matt as well. And we extend a special thank you, um, Professor, for joining us and sharing your, your expertise and wisdom here. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, being part of your audio cast and I wish you every success for the series and thank you for, for having me. Thank and you. Again, thank you to all the listeners and for taking part. That's been terrific. This is Artem Smith signing off. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Family Business Audiocast on LinkedIn. Have a great day.